0: Well, good morning. Good morning. We are now getting back into the book of John, where we were prior to the holidays. So we took a short hiatus there for Advent and Christmas. It's only fitting that today's uh, section of Scripture in John, and we're going to get back at the very beginning of this year, we're going to be getting to new birth in John. It's fitting that not only is... Birth, the beginning of our lives, but it's also the beginning of this year. This year now has a new birth, right? Um, metaphorically, of course. So, this section here, we're going to be getting back. Uh, we're going to be starting John here until we get into our uh, ascension season, which then goes into uh, Easter. So, there's a lot of celebration in liturgy. In a liturgical life, there's a lot of celebration. There is continual reminding of ourselves and each other, uh, what God has done for us, and what we are called to do for each other and for God himself. So we are now going to be getting into this section here, which is new birth in John chapter 3. This happens to be probably the most controversial section of the entire Bible. Every single denomination has had to hash this out before they were even a denomination. Every single Christian has had to understand this at whatever their understanding, whatever their level of understanding, before they even became Christian and went to church. This section here is dealing with new birth. What does it mean? What does it look like? What are we called to do? What are we called not to do? What are we called not to worry about? Without this, there can be no understanding of what salvation is without John chapter 3. All of them, meaning the denominations, all of them believe that they're right. Whether you believe that you need to be baptized for salvation, whether you believe you take someone down the road to Romans and say the sinner's prayer, um, or you can get into any of the offshoots, whatever your belief system is in which salvation comes to you, every single denomination, every single church believes that they are accurate and right in their assumption of the Scriptures in John chapter 3. Believing that they're right doesn't mean that they are right. So there is a clear understanding of what Scripture has to say to us. And we're going to get into that. We're also going to get into why we believe that. So we have two points that we're going to be examining today. These two points, first of all, it's not only to help us understand where we fit within the spectrum of the understanding. And then the second is also to help us understand the responsibility that with this understanding, as Elder Ratliff said last week, And he wrapped it up very nicely by saying our actions are the result of our belief system. How you act is a clear indication of what you believe. If you act like a fool, it's because you believe foolish understanding. If you act mature, you understand maturely. doesn't mean all the time, of course. We can get silly and act ridiculous amongst our buds at times and still have good understanding, still have good theology. So there isn't just a hard and fast... You're acting really foolish, therefore, you know nothing about God. This is not what we're saying. But by and large, your actions are a direct result of your belief system, right? And it isn't so much your actions, how you hang around with buds, but it's also how you live your life at work, at school, in your everyday life. Amen? So our two points. First, what we believe about salvation. Second, What ought we to do with that? So let's dive in here and see what the divine and inspired word has to say. If you could stand for the reading of God's divine word. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through verse 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God has been with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, or in some ver- uh, versions, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can this be? Can a man enter into his mother's womb when he is old? A second time, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of that to that which we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for us this morning. I pray for myself, Lord, that I can deliver this in a coherent way, Lord, that we could all understand and be blessed by it in the same way that I was, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, for not only the preaching of the word, but the hearing of the word, Lord, that it would rest in our hearts. God, that this word would cause us to look at you with eyes of twinkling, a little more dearly, Lord, that we may love you a lot more nearly. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. You may be seated. So who is Nicodemus? There's not a whole lot written about him. We only see him show up in Scripture in three instances, which is more than some, but a lot less than most. So who is this Nicodemus? Nicodemus, whose name means victory of the people, he was impressive enough to have won over the admiration of his people. He wasn't just saintly or significant or successful. He was all three in one. John three 3.1 introduce, introduces us to him as a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Incidentally, has anyone seen the series Chosen? Raise raise your hand if you have, just so I can see. Other than head nods, okay, a few. So it, it's a modern series that's going on right now. They're still producing them. And it's the life of Jesus. They take a lot of um, artistic liberty for the, the white spaces in between the verses, right? So it doesn't tell us that Jesus walked on a dirt path, but we see him in, in the show walking on a dirt path. It, it makes sense, right? We can easily infer this. Sometimes we can go astray by doing this as writers and creators, uh, but sometimes we try to very earnestly stay accurate to what the scriptures are implying and directly, imperatively saying. So um, it, I recommend it. It's pretty good. Uh, it's not it's so accurate that you can build your entire theology off of it, but it's a pretty good show. I mean, it's, it's far better than other things on Netflix, so why not watch something that's close to great, right? So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Pharisees were a group within the Jewish population who had been calling, um, who had been calling their people back to a strict adherence to the law of Moses. These guys were lawyers. They were lawyers of the law of God. They were calling people to adhere to the word of God. They were the ultra-theologians. theology uh, theologians. They've been doing this since back at the time of the Maccabees. The rabbis have built massive body of oral traditions, which interpreted, had, had been, been interpreted and expanded and safeguarded by the original laws. So they're taking the word of God and they are protecting it. and They're protecting it with their lives. By the first century A.D., there was likely around 6,000 Pharisees. So, it was a small percentage, even though 6,000 seems like a large number. It's a small percentage of the actual Jewish population. But they held overwhelming amounts of influence over what was considered to be right and wrong in the word of God to their countrymen. Second thing Nicodemus was, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is also called the Sanhedrin. Have you heard of that? Okay. This was a seventy-member council, which served the Jewish as the Jewish Supreme Court. They made the final rulings on how things are to be happening for Jewish religious people. Uh, Jewish anything. They didn't have people who weren't religious. All Jews must adhere at that point during this time. If you didn't, you were just you know quite an infidel. So their laws spanned not only the laws of biblical writings, which we know today go okay. These things are. We, are, we hold these things in our lives as Christians and at church, but they spend their laws even amongst your daily living, how you cook, how you prepare your, your, your week, how you plan out your life. Their laws were a law for you to live by, which made it easy for some because you could put a check mark. It makes it easy for us when we have a list to make a check mark, but God is not interested in our check marks. He's interested in our hearts, not always our adherence. So, this Sanhedrin were 70 members of this council. So they take this idea from the 70 elders that were chosen amongst the heads of households in Israel during the time of Moses when he was so bogged down by trying to rule over every single matter as a judge in the court. Moses' father Jethro said, appoint some people. He appointed 70 men, so they've taken this Jewish high supreme court council as from its laws back in Moses' day. So it's a very old institution. It's a very respected institution. Nicodemus was not only a part of the Sanhedrin, which was your religious elite. Not only religious elite, they were also their political elite. They were the ones who made the law of our land. They would be uh, as if you could have no Congre- uh, no president. It, when it was just Congress made all the rules, they passed them. it's that. So he would be a part of that type of group. For any of those who don't understand, you may already understand this, but this may be new to you as well. So he sits in a very high, prestigious situation. There were typically aristocrats in there, Sadducees and Pharisees that made up the Sanhedrin. I say all this, it doesn't seem like it's very important, but I say all this to tell you he was a very, very prominent and important person in his area. I emphasize the word the teacher when Jesus referred to him because he had earned the right and the position to be the supreme teacher of the laws of Israel over all of the Jewish people. He was the theologian of the day. There was none that was smarter than him when it came to the laws of God. So I need us to understand he's not just a guy that came at night to Jesus talking about things. This is a prominent, smart person. Incidentally, the sermon of my title is Secret Service in the Shadows of Night. And We'll see that unfold a little bit more here. So when, Nicodem- when Nicodemus came to Jesus to find out more about him, Jesus called him Israel's teacher, which suggests that he had a high level of esteem from all of his fellow Jews. They put him into that position. Nicodemus began the conversation by tactfully complimenting Jesus saying rabbi we know that you are a teacher who has come from god for no one could perform these signs that you're doing if god were not with him this actually was quite the affirmation yet rather than basking in the compliment as many would when someone ruffles or none ruffles your feathers but kind of fluffs you up You would bask in that compliment and that would change your demeanor and how you address this person. Oh, this guy likes me. This guy esteems me. I'm going to address him differently. Jesus doesn't do that, which is really quite wonderful. He's just very accurate all the time, very truthful, very mature all the time. You've heard the the phrase saying, let my yea be my yea, my nay, my nay. Jesus lived by this. If I say yes, it's yes. If I say no, it's no. And we've tried to do this in my home when kids are begging for the 18th time to do the exact same thing. It's like, my yes is yes. If I said no, why are you asking again? So we all try to live by this in some fashion. But we could do this a little bit more. So Jesus doesn't bask in the compliment of the Pharisee. He immediately gets to the heart of things, of Nicodemus. He gets right into Nicodemus's heart, and he replies back really quite quickly with, Verily, verily, which means Truly. You have to be born again. So had Nicodemus been born again? Well, that certainly wasn't the question on Nicodemus's mind. That's not why he was going there. He wasn't searching for Christ to tell him that he was saved eternally. It wasn't in his mind at that point. At least is what we can infer from Scripture. He didn't even know what Jesus was talking about by the phrase. So, if Nicodemus was all that the Scriptures imply that he is, this really smart person... Why did he come to Jesus? Why was he seeking answers from Jesus? We don't know for sure, but we can see through Scripture that could it be a fear of prying eyes that he came to Jesus by night? Night is very key. We're going to see. Night is an in- a very instrumental word within this. Why could he not come in the day? No, he came to Jesus by night. So why? Could it be fear? Fear of prying eyes. Fear of judgment and accusation? Could it be that he was a delegation of the Sanhedrin and they didn't want to be associated with being a follower of Jesus, so they came in a secret time? Could it be that he was just seeking a private audience with Jesus because typically there were always crowds around Jesus whenever he was teaching, so he wanted to make sure that he got a very specific answer to his specific question? There's a lot of things it could be. We don't know the actual intent, but we can infer here what we know for sure is that he came to him by night. We don't know what time of the night. That isn't important in the Scripture. We know that he came to him at night. What happens at night? It is what? Dark. Thank you. So whatever time of night it is, whether it's uh, their time of the season that it was, whether it was 6 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't really matter. The fact is he came to Christ by night. He came to him when it was dark. So we're going to look at a couple of harmonizing scriptures and see what it says in regards to darkness. In John chapter 1, starting verse 3 through 5, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that had been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines, and the darkness darkness could not understand it or overpower it. John chapter 3, verse 19 says, Men love darkness rather than light. Why? In fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. You ever try to find your child when you know he's up to no good? Hiding behind a chair? Mm -hmm. Hiding in a closet? Eating the chocolate they're not supposed to touch? (laughs) Taking their brother's thing they weren't supposed to touch? I know you all have had children like this, at least one of them in your family. (laughs) If not all of them. It's in our nature to hide and not be seen when we're in sin. We don't want to be seen. We're afraid of that. Why would Nicodemus come to Jesus in light for Jesus just to point out his sin? No, he felt more comfortable going to him at night. So whatever the motive to visit Jesus in the shadows of night, we understand what his root cause was. He was an unregenerated man. Fear of being exposed by the light. Nicodemus came to Christ as a pompous complementarian oh, rabbi, let me just give you the title of master teacher, rabbi. The Pharisees hated Jesus. There were some that did like Jesus, but they could not say they did, or else they would have been kicked out of the the Sanhedrin for sure. Not necessarily the Pharisees, but they would have been kicked out of the Sanhedrin for sure. In verse 2, we see Nicodemus say, When he comes to Jesus, and you're going to see this correlation even like within yourself as well as within your children, but let's just put the finger on ourselves here for a moment, okay? He goes to Jesus and he goes, we know. So here comes the compliment, that you are of God. Who's this we? Was there anybody there with Nicodemus? Were any of Jesus' disciples there? We we don't know for sure. It doesn't say, but we just know the interaction between these two men happened, whether there was somebody there, but We don't think that Nicodemus was looping the disciples in as his group. He said, we know. Who's the we? Well, it could be a couple of people or a couple of things. It could be the entirety of the Sanhedrin. It could be the entirety of the Pharisees or some of either one of them. Uh, It could have been him just saying, uh, you know, well, you know, we, my friend wants to know. It deflects off of us so that we don't have to take that direct hit of what's coming next. You know, we know. We know. So, here comes his complementarian side, and he starts with the flowery words, pumping Jesus up as, you're the, you are a wise uh, rabbi, master, teacher. Uh, we know you're of God. Nobody can do the things that you do unless God was with him, because you're doing great and wonderful things. So, Jesus cuts right through all the fluff, and he goes right to the heart of the matter with Nicodemus, He doesn't even address why Nicodemus is there. Don't care. I'm dealing with you as an unregenerated person. Jesus immediately gets to his heart and he deals with his nature. And and he says in so many words, No, Nicodemus, you don't know because you're unregenerated and you rest in darkness. You are unenlightened. So Nicodemus says, we know. Jesus goes, no, you don't know. You don't know anything. You think you do. You, the Pharisees, you don't really understand anything spiritual. Because later on he says, if I tell you of earthly things you don't understand, how could you understand heavenly things? You guys don't get it. So in verse 11, he says, we know the truth. This is Christ speaking now. He uses Nicodemus' words. He goes, we know. Who is we? Well, let's just say the Pharisees, right? A group of Pharisees that do believe in Jesus. We know that you're of God. Now, Jesus turns it back in verse 11. He says, we know the truth. We speak the truth. And you don't understand. Even you, the chief teacher of all of Israel, because you have not been born again. So what does this mean, born again? Most people think of a particular thing when I say born again you may have come across someone who is a, an extreme Christian extrovert um, oh God, I remember meeting a gentleman I, I shook his hand and said, "Hey how are you doing? Oh I'm finer than a frog's hair split three ways. Okay, frogs don't have hair so you're awfully fine. <laughs> I'm higher than a, I'm so high right now I could go duck hunting with a rake. okay? All right? So we've met these people that are so exuberant about their faith. And then the first thing we do is we shut it down. We go, oh, they're from one of them rowdy churches. You probably handle snakes. (laughs) That's the first thing we want to do. We want to discredit the integrity of the person because they use the word born again. They can't stop saying... I'm a born again this. I'm a born again that. Like I'm a born again alcoholic. I'm a born again drug user. Like I'm born again. I'm born again. I'm born again. So we typically attribute this to a caricature. This is a, you know what a caricature is. Raise your hand if you do. All right, for those who don't, you go to the beach and somebody draws you with a really funny face holding a surfboard, you never surf a day in your life, but you got this massive head on this tiny little body, that's a caricature. It looks something like, but it isn't actually an actual person, right? So we believe in this caricature in our head that the person who says all of these kinds of fanatical sayings, they just sound fanatical. They're crazy. I bet they go to crazy church, right? We, as respectable, upright Christians, we would never say, oh, I'm born again. You got to be born again. We use that term when describing what God has done for us. So when people say this, I understand what they're saying. I understand what the point that they're trying to get to. Other people sometimes will say, Well, back when I was converted, or back when I came to faith, back when I was regenerated, back when I was sanctified, or redeemed, or justified. All of these things, I understand what they're saying, but each one of these things specifically is simply an attribute of salvation, but isn't salvation in and of itself. Within salvation, you will be sanctified. You have been justified you will be regenerated, but not any one of these is actually salvation until you get to the words born again. That is actual salvation. It is the most correct and theologically accurate term to use when describing who you are as Christian. I have been born again, and I'll explain why. When the Spirit of God comes into our lives and we come to that point will sometimes say that, that point of illumination, when we understand that we are sinners and that God is sovereign and that he has loved us before we even knew him and that he has desired us from the foundation of the world and we have, our heart explodes like the Grinch in the Christmas movie. Our hearts grow three sizes too big. At that point, this is what all of this conversation happens, but it all summed up in being born again. So what is Jesus saying when he says all of these verilys? Well, first of all, verily means truly, which in the version I read to you is truly, but it's truly, truly. None of us walk around going, truly, truly, you need to clean your room. (laughs) Truly, truly, we have to get to church on time. We don't speak this way. It It is a phrase of Hebraic poetry, which adds emphasis by adding the second word. So, it's saying it is an unchangeable truth. It is actual truth. Not like the truth we just kind of throw around. Oh yeah, that's true, yeah. yeah. Well, is it really true? Do you know? Do you know? Have you ever physically walked on the moon? Do you know that we've been to the moon? Like, you can't say with truth, I know, right? We go, yeah, we've been there, we saw a video, right? Okay. I'm not saying we've not been to the moon. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm simply saying there are things you know for sure because you've done them and the things you can only just trust that we've done these things because they've been told to us. So there is truth. So there's truth and there's fact. A fact says that she is skating on ice when she is ice skating. A further fact says, no, actually she's not skating on ice. The friction between the blade of the skate and the ice actually melts the ice to water form, and she is actually hydroplaning over the ice. She's not cutting the ice. That is a further fact. Well, truth says, actually none of that. She's actually riding on top of atoms. That's an unchangeable truth. It is not changed by circumstance. It is not changed by space and time. You can never change that. She rides on atoms always. We walk on atoms Our feet are not actually touching the ground. Crazy thought. So, he's saying that level of truth by adding that second word verily in there. This is absolute truth, Nicodemus. I tell you this. This is in verse 3. I tell you that this is me paraphrasing this. I tell you this unchangeable truth that you have to be born again. Nicodemus, I don't understand. What are you saying? I don't get it. Verse 5. He says, again, I tell you this unchangeable truth that you have to be born of water and the Spirit in order to enter into heaven. So, how do these two phrases compare in verse 5? Verse 5 has to do the exact same complement or concept that verse 3 does. Jesus addresses Nicodemus' heart with a single point, and I'll paraphrase here Nick. Nick. You may be the greatest of all the theologians, the most successful influencer of the Jews, but you are not going to heaven unless you are born again. Many have speculated that the water here, meaning because he's speaking in verse 5, uh, you get, first, verse 3, says you've got to be born again. Okay, what does that mean? No, and then he comes back with a further truth. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit right, to go to heaven, enter into heaven. First one, you've got to be born again, you're not even going to see heaven. Second time he addresses he goes, okay, I'm going to go further. Like our truth goes further than just ice skating. It gets down to the reality of things. I'm telling you for sure, you have to be born again of water and spirit in order to enter to heaven. Nicodemus, you're not going. Unless. There are many thoughts out there, and this is where I'm saying these denominations have had to deal with these things and grapple with these things before saying, we understand how people are saved. Some believe that it literally means the ambiotic fluid of the mother's womb. That's why Nicodemus said, can I enter her womb? So Nicodemus just immediately goes there. And this is why Christ says, I can't even tell you about earthly things and you don't understand. If Nicodemus understood it properly, he would have said, can I enter into my mother's womb to be born again of water and spirit? Jesus would have said, no, 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 you got part of that right. But no, 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 you, yeah, yeah, you're in mom's womb. No, he says, you're not even understanding the earthly things that I'm telling you about. So, what is the idea of water? It's meant to be born physically? Well, here, grammatically, it wouldn't use the word physically after being born again. So he tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, I don't understand. Second time he mentions it, you've got to be born again of water and spirit. Nicodemus already addressed the part of birth. So he's saying we've got to go back and be reborn again in order to end up with the spirit. Grammatically, it doesn't make any sense. He's saying something very specific about a specific water. And so this is where we need harmonization between the scriptures. Christ is speaking to the teacher of Israel and is in a common way that oftentimes he would do in his parables. So he talks with people and uses the the things that they would understand the most. Jesus is touching in an Old Testament scripture here found in Ezekiel, chapter 36. Remember who he's talking to. This isn't just a person on the street who doesn't really understand God. It isn't a person on the street who read, you know, Christianity 101. Or they like to open up their Bible and go, I'm going to be super spiritual. Okay, that's for me. That's God talking to me. It's not that person. This is a highly skilled, trained theologian. What other way would he talk to a theologian other than going to the Scriptures that the theologian knows the most? So, the theologian should have known Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleaned, cleansed from all of your unrighteousness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you and give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave you to your father's. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Who's doing the work here? Who's doing the giving and the taking? God? Yeah, God. God said, I will do this. I will cleanse you with clean water. I will put in you my spirit. Does that sound familiar? You've got to be born again of water and the spirit? Okay. It is God who does this. It's not anything that we do. To infer that we have to be born of a natural woman and a natural birth, that puts a responsibility on a person to birth me. There is a responsibility within a human there. In Ezekiel, it's all of God's responsibility. God does this, not us. Jesus tells Nicodemus, this is the way that life has been placed in him. I'm sorry, he tells Nicodemus that his way of life places him in the path to hell and that he needs to stop relying on his religious works and to be born again. Salvation is a gift from above. It's what God does, and it's what God alone does. Now, Jesus teaches this expert in the Levitical law that God is the only one doing the work, not a Pharisee who abides by all the laws and calls himself righteous because he does all of those laws. He said, it is God alone who does the walk. The work. It is he who washes us and cleanses us and places his spirit in us. No academic degree, no receipt of charitable giving, no secret good deed, no expert guidance will ever get you born again. It is only something that can be done by God and God alone. It is a radical change. So we're talking about a new heart, right? This is not just a heart. You know, he's talking about a fleshly heart, but he's understanding you've got a new passion, right? This has radically changed. This is what made Christianity so different at the time. You had Judaism and you had paganism, which was a polytheistic many forms within paganism. The Christian way was new. It was radical. It was fresh. You had a God that loved you and died for you so that you could be sanctified and do a thing you could never earn on your own. That's radical. That's new. We have become new creatures in God, outside of God. We are not new creatures. We're old creatures. It is he who puts a new heart in us. It is he who puts a new spirit in us. It is he who causes us to walk in the statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. He does this so that we can be his people and he can be our God. There's a lot of personalization here. We often place the label like Calvinistic would do on an individual. That person's a Calvinist. But John Calvin was only writing down what Jesus said to Nicodemus when we understand how Calvin thinks about salvation. Listen, Nick, I'll tell you plainly so you can understand again. You don't get to go to heaven based on your position and your religious stature as has been ascribed to you. My Father must first cleanse you and place His Spirit in you in order for you to go to heaven. Jesus tells Nicodemus starting in verse 12 and 13 that if he can't understand the things here on this earth when he speaks about things of this life, how could he understand spiritual things of heaven? If he doesn't if he has not been cleansed by the clean water of God or been filled by his spirit. He also says that he is the only one he says who has ascended into heaven and who has descent and who has descended back. He's telling Nicodemus, I'm the only one who has ever seen the face of God and never been consumed. This adds a token of authority to what he's saying. He's talking to Nicodemus, and he's using phrases and scriptures that he would know very well, concepts that he would be very familiar with, but Nicodemus never connected the dots. He's saying, I'm the one who has gone before the face of God, and I have not been consumed. This gives him the authority to say such. And then he says, just as Moses lifted up a serpent and there was salvation because he lifted up the serpent during the battle for as long as that serpent was lifted, the the people of Israel were winning. Just as Moses did that, I, the Son of Man, have to be lifted up in your heart in order for salvation to come to you. He's really addressing the heart of Nicodemus and anyone who's reading this thereafter. He says again very plainly, and I'll just, you know, my paraphrase word Hey, Nick, you have to believe in me, and only then can my Father cleanse you with water and fill you with his Spirit. You have to be washed by God and empowered by God to receive the eternal gift of heaven. Here we see Jesus school the Master at his own game. From here, we see Nicodemus has now met his point of appointment. Nicodemus becomes a follower of Christ based on what Jesus did during this interaction. We see him then show up later in the story when Jesus is being accused by the Sanhedrin to be put to death for for being blasphemous. And it's one of the Sanhedrin members that pipes up and goes, "Ah, Doesn't our laws say that a man needs a fair trial before we sentence him? And the Sanhedrin were very upset with him for using the law to try to get Jesus out of it. Because he knew that once they brought him to a fair trial, they couldn't charge him and they couldn't expedite death upon him. That's a, that would be the third time we see him, uh, second time we see him. The third time we see him is after Jesus' death. Again, proving his, his authority in the, of the people, he was able to address Pilate. Do you think the shoemaker could address Pilate? Sandal maker. Do you think the pottery maker? Could you address the president of the United States so plainly? Nicodemus goes before Pilate and he says, I crave the body of Jesus. Craving is a deep, I talked about hunger before, thirsting. Craving is a deep desire, not just, can I have that thing, you know, if you're not using it? He craved the body of Jesus so that he could prepare it according to the Jewish laws of burial. So we see that Nicodemus had been converted. We don't see him show up anywhere else in history. Well, we do. There's actually a gospel of, there's a gospel of Nicodemus, which was an apocryphal book, which got taken out in the late 1800s. But um, for 1800 years, Christians did look to his writings um, as support. He loved Jesus after that. During this conversation, he didn't understand Jesus until Jesus broke it down for him. John chapter 3 can be divided into three parts. Verses 1 through 15 deals with the new birth and the transformation of our own persons. persons in uh, verses 16 through 21, which you're going to hear Elder Ratliff talk about next week, Dealing with the legal portion, I mean, anytime there is a covenant to be made, there has to be legal documents of sort right to order in order to bind that agreement right so he's going to be dealing with the legality of what Jesus is talking about in verses one through fifteen <clears throat> whether he mentions the words legal or not this is how this there has to be a binding in verse nineteen he says this is the verdict right? verse nineteen becomes the verdict, and, and we'll hear about that ni- next next week but so In conclusion, as you consider the story of Nicodemus, where do you find yourself? Are you a private truth seeker under the cover of darkness? Do you show that you are a Christian and that you've been born again? Does that come across in your conversation? Does it come across in your thought patterns? Are you considering the things of God before taking a step in a direction that's required you to go. Are you living like a Christian? Oh, what does that mean? <laughs> right, well, that can mean a whole lot. I'm not here to tell you how you should live. But if you're placing Christ in the center of your thought process, many years ago in the late 90s, we had this WWJD everywhere. What would Jesus do? Right. It's a really cheesy concept. It looks good on a bracelet or on a ski hat. Which I saw my son wearing. I was so proud of my son wearing a ski hat that said, "What would Jesus do?" In Colorado, of all places, because they don't even know who Jesus is. <clears throat> Most don't. I know. I know. Kevin Swanson does. <laughs> but what are our? What is our intentions of living out life? Are we considering Christ? to be the decision maker in the Scripture to tell us how we ought to go and move. In Him, we move, live, and have our being. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want people to see that he's doing this. Let's not be like that. When we're around our friends, and I'll specifically address the teenage boys, when you're around your buds, let let each other see you're Christian. You can have fun, but still be Christian. Young ladies, when you're around your... And I'm saying this, I mean, older guys too i have seen conversations go in directions that probably shouldn't go. We all do. Why? Because we're carnal man. And we fail. We fail a lot. That's okay, as long as we repent and get it right, and then strive to go in a better direction than that. So, are you coming to Jesus in the cover of darkness? Or are you one who wants to know more about Jesus and his truths? Are you wanting to know more about his salvation or heaven or being born again? Are you one who only verbally and perhaps timidly speaks in regards to Christian matters? Or are you one who boldly and tangibly takes action to defend the honor and the mission of Jesus Christ? As you continue your journey, it's our prayer that you make him Lord of your life. He is your Savior. Nothing and no one else is. If you don't look to Christ for all of your answers, you are miserably failing life. We all are. We all have stepped into something without considering God in that moment. That is a red stamp of failure. So get it right. Choose to move forward. Change your mind. Pray that God puts a new heart and a new mind that He may cleanse you by His clean water and that He will place His Spirit in you every day so that we can make better, I don't want to say choices, like this is dependent upon you guys being saved or not, better choices in life to show forth the honor and glory of your Father in heaven. The Bible tells us that when they see our good works, they meaning the people of the world, when they see our good works, They will then turn and glorify our Father in heaven. How do they glorify our Father in heaven? By becoming Christians themselves. That's the only way they can. An unbeliever will not say, Glory to you, O Lord in the highest, for what you have done in Donna Foise. I hate you, and I live a life that's against you and do everything for myself, but praise you, Father. They won't. They will only glorify God if they have been born again. So your actions will help other people see how good God is and then will want to be born again themselves. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we can spend together, Lord, uh, searching your word, digging in, Lord, understanding, God, that it is only you, only you who cleanses us from our unrighteousness and places your spirit within us. That after cleansing us, You give us the empowerment to do right. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the dissecting of your word because it means so much more than just looking at it at face value. Father, I pray, God, that this would sit within our hearts, Lord, that we would no longer come to you in the cover of darkness, that we would no longer be timid when speaking about the things of God, that our lives would show our faith. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.